Amen. You may be seated. And if you uh, have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Genesis. It's the easiest one to open to, right in the beginning. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Chapter 2, verses, starting verse 4 through 25. Um, and today's uh, title of today's sermon is Creation Intent. And if I were to name, like, uh, uh, the, really the first three uh, sermons of this uh, series, that's what I would probably call it, Creation Intent. Um, because that's really what we're looking at. And we only have two chapters um, where we see the world the way that God intended it to be. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at the fall. Spoiler alert. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get broken. But these first two chapters really show us what God intended to create, what he had meant to do. Um, and when we look at these, when we look back at these, I think there's maybe even a tendency in us to, to think of it in the way that um, we look back on our own lives all the time, right? And you kind of have in your own mind uh, what I would call like the myth of your childhood, right? The, it's kind of a mythic kind of picture. And for some, some people it's bad, some people like a, a negative view, but some people have a positive view, kind of a Norman Rockwell kind of existence uh, that you look back and you talk about I hear a lot of you talk about the, the good old days and the way the things used to be. And, and uh, you know, well, in my day, kids and, and the kids today have things to deal with that we never had to deal with. And that's certainly true. But, but it gets kind of blown out of proportion sometimes, right? A little bit, the idea idealizing of the past gets sometimes out of proportion, where it's like, well, in my day, everyone was just good and did good things and loved God and went to church and things like well, that wasn't all, that wasn't entirely true, right? There was there have been negative things. There's been evil through all of history. Uh, there were there were difficult things and negative things and bad things in the world then as well. Um, so, but we kind of ha- have that idea, and I think sometimes we suspect that that's the case even with when we look at the story of creation. Like, well, okay, well, yeah, that's you know, what God said, but is it was it really that good or what was it really like? Um, this is exactly what it was like, right? Scripture is true. It's telling us exactly what God intended to create and what he did create, right? He created intentionally and he created perfectly what he wanted. He got what he wanted, right? We looked at that last week, the idea of he said it was very good. means he got exactly what he wanted. This chapter is a um, little bit like a fleshing out a little bit of things that happened in chapter one, right? Chapter one and through, through uh, verse three of chapter two, last week when we looked at, that's kind of, written in this very stylistic way of telling the story of creation, the order of creation. This is going to be a little more specific about man in the garden. Right? There's a lot of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's creation and those kind of things that we're going to look at this morning uh, in chapter 2. So starting in verse 4, we'll look at first the tree of life, this idea of the tree of life. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, so first he's, he starts talking about kind of his, uh, this you know, blank space that he's going to create in. But one of the unique things we see in there is the idea, he says that this, this mist used to come up from the ground. But that, that word might, might not be translated properly. It's a kind of a difficult word to translate. It could also mean like a, a, a spring, an underground spring. And based on what we see later in this chapter, that's probably what it really meant, that there was this, this spring, this water source coming out of the ground that was watering everything. There wasn't, there wasn't rain that you had to depend on. And the point of this is that man didn't have to struggle to irrigate the ground, right? Didn't have to, to, to wait for the rain or struggle to find a way to get the water to where they wanted it to go to irrigate the ground. That we see that God's intent here for man is stress-free gardening, right? Which for any of us who have ever gardened, like that's really a, 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 a miracle, right? The idea that it would just, everything would just go according to like how you thought it would go and the plants would grow the way you thought they would grow and just naturally irrigate everything. Um, that's really a, an amazing thing. And especially for the time and place that this was written to, originally the time that this, the people that this was written to, waiting for rain, and especially in the climate that they had, waiting for rain and asking God to provide the rain to, to water the crops was a big deal. It was a big problem that they had, was waiting for rain. And that's, that's partly why you ended up with all these localized gods in that, in, in that time, when, as Israel is going into the promised land, and they see all these gods and all these peoples that are worshiping different gods. Those were mostly rain gods. They're mostly looking for how can we make sure it's going to rain. Um, and so this idea that, hey, this is just happening on its own is, is a beautiful part of God's creation intent, and we're going to see more about gardening and that kind of thing, and that idea of stress-free gardening as, as an original intent of man uh, for God for his people. But we see that God formed the man from the dust of the ground, right? He forms the man, literally forms it. The, the word that they use for form is like, is the word used for potting or, or making things out of clay, like it's a a potter's term, right? Forming in that kind of way, the way you form clay. Um, but we see that this is, this is certainly true for the inaugural man, that God's forming him directly out of the dust of the ground, it tells us, but that it's true perpetually as well. We see like in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. He's pointing to this idea of God as your creator, as your direct former, that he forms. There's other places in the scripture where he talks about him forming us in our mother's womb, that he literally is the one putting the pieces together, forming it, making it happen. However, we see that happening scientifically as we look at development of the fetus in the womb and that sort of thing. It's ultimately God's hand at work. Right? That's what we see in this passage. And this idea of God as our creator, as our former, should have a humbling effect, right? Thinking of God as our creator, as our former, should, be, should have a humbling effect. We see this in multiple places in Scripture. We see it twice in Isaiah. The first is um, the prophet Isaiah is, is charging the people of Israel with turning away from God. And he says this in, in chapter 29, verse 16. It says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Are you saying, 
as those who are made, how dare you say to the Creator, like, you didn't make me? But we do. We say that all the time. We, we don't allow God to have the authority over our lives that He ought to. We see this also in Isaiah's conclusion later on, one of his concluding, concluding sections in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 8 and 9. He's talking to God and he says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Right? He's talking to God and saying, God, we are your people. We are the ones that you formed. Having that humility to say, yes, God, you are in control, not us. It's a part of Jeremiah's vision as well. God actually sends him to the potter's house to watch him work so he can get it, a clearer idea of this. Jeremiah 18, 4 through 6. These are all in your handouts as well, so you don't have to look them up or write them down. If you're, all these passages that we bring up are listed in your um, handout. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. It comes off the wheel. It came off. And he reworked it into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Right? He sees the pot. He's watching this potter, and God tells him, like, that's like you. You're the work of my hand. I can change you. I can make you new. I can do different things with you. In the New Testament, Paul uses this as an argument as he sees men arguing with God. In Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, he says, Be, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's saying again, who are you to question God as, as one who is made by his hand? Who are you to question God? That takes a lot of humility, and especially in our time where being an intellectual and having all the answers is a highly valued trait that we can tend to put ourselves above him or have a right to question him, not recognize the great distance of God to us, right? That he has the answers we don't. We don't, that we are the ones who are made, not the maker. The reason that I point this out, one of the reasons I point this out, is this is what we see. We see this idea of man being formed from the dust of the ground. That plays out throughout Scripture. Right? These themes that we see in these first couple of verse, chapters of Genesis are so important because they play out throughout Scripture. Right? We should always, there, there's often a way to look, point back and see this creation intent happening throughout Scripture. Like it's always pointing back to it. It's one of the reasons that I, that I wanted to start with Genesis, is to show these foundational things, especially these first few chapters, have so much foundational stuff that then reoccurs throughout Scripture. That when, when you see that, when you read in the New Testament and you see Paul talking about the potter and the clay and being formed, that should immediately harken back to, oh yeah, we are formed out of the dust of the ground. That's the origin. Right? These kind of things are constantly referring back to these pivotal verses. We also see he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, this idea of breath of life, that's not unique to humans. All creatures are said to have the breath of life. We see this in uh, Genesis chapter 6, which we're going to get to soon. But in Genesis chapter 6, when God says he's going to 
wipe out all flesh. He says this in chapter 17, in verse 17, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. He's talking about humans and animals, right? So they all have the breath of life. But one thing we see here is he breathes directly into the man, right? He, he puts the breath of life directly into his nostrils. It says God breathed into man, into his nostrils, the breath of life. So again, the unique place of humans in God's creation is reiterated, right? While all things have this breath of life, uniquely man is, is God directly puts it into him, right? We see that being a unique situation here. He also speaks of the tree of life, and the tree of life um, was, was a tree. It had some kind of fruit that if they ate it, they would have eternal life. It conferred eternal life on Adam and Eve. By eating it, they would live forever. Right? This is an essential part of the garden, and again, essential part of how we are created. Right? We're made for eternity. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Right? He points to this fact, that the, the author of Ecclesiastes points to this fact that we have this sense of eternity in, in our hearts, right? in our minds. We have this concept, even the fact that we can conceive of eternity. And I know it's one of those things that when you think about it, kind of like bends your brain. You know, like when you try to really think about well, what does eternity mean? It's like, could we really, like, give you a headache? But regardless, like, we have that concept. Like, animals don't have that concept, right? No, and your dog's not sitting around thinking about, like, what is eternity like, right? He's not, he's not, that's not what it means when he's got that stupid look on his face. Right? <laughs> that's not, he's not having those thoughts. Right? We have those thoughts. God has put eternity in our hearts. He has, the, we have that concept of what happens after we die. Even the fact that all humans think about what came before me and what's going to come after me? Where do I go? What happens to me when I die? That question alone points to the fact that we're made for eternity. Right? That we're made to have eternal life. We're designed for that. And so he's put that into our hearts. And the idea that original, again, go back to that creation intent. God's intent for humans was that they would live forever. Right? And they had this tree of life that would give them that ability to live forever. But he also points to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And he says, in eating of this tree, so eating from this, if eating from that tree leads to eternal life, eating from this tree leads to knowing good and evil. Now that's kind of a, a weird thing, like what does that mean? What does it mean to know good and evil? Well, one of the problems for us in this passage, in, in this passage is because we never experience this state, it's really difficult to understand. Right? It's, it's literally something that's so far beyond our own experience because we're born in sin. We're born with that. Like The idea of what would it be like to not have that knowledge is very difficult to, to kind of suss out. And a lot of, there's a lot of different ways that people try to explain it. Some people think about it was just moral discernment. They wouldn't have moral discernment. But I think one easy thing to think about is we think about the, what is evil. Well, evil is, is what's not from God, right? God is the source of all good things and, and everything um, that is good comes from him and is within his will. So then anything outside of his will is evil, right? Anything that's happening that's outside of his will is evil. Anything that is not of God is evil. So by violating this command, they would have revealed evil, right? They, have re they would be doing something that was outside of God's will. They would be doing something that is evil 
and by contrast, then they would know good. Right? Good is in contrast to evil. Right? Otherwise, it's just what is. Right? Think about it this way. Think about, uh, uh, hypothetically, a little boy grows up. He's only ever eating his mom's cooking. Right? Maybe they, they don't go out to eat. They don't go to restaurants. That he only ever eats his mom's cooking. Right? It's not good or bad. It's just food. Right? That's just food. But then he gets invited to his friend's house, and he goes over to his friend's house to have a meal. Now he's going to sit down, like, that's either going to be better or worse. And, and the minute that it's better or worse, his mom's cooking is good or bad. Right? Before it's not. So he goes over, and he tries it, and he's like, oh, this is really gross. Now all of a sudden, my mom is a great cook. Right? Because that mom is not. But if it's really way better, now all of a sudden, oh, my mom's not a very good cook. Right? Before, it was just, it was nothing. It wasn't good or bad. It was just food. The minute there's something to compare it to, now it can be good or bad. Right? And so in this situation, Adam and Eve are experiencing the garden. I mean, God declares that it's good, and I'm sure they enjoyed it, and it's pleasurable, that sort of thing. But it's just what is. The minute they break that, now there's evil and there is good. Right? Now there is, there is bad and there is good. Now there is, this is revealed. We'll get more into that next week as they do actually break that. All right, point number two, kingdom established. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. A river flowed out of Eden to to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the names of the third river is the Tigris, which flowed east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the first thing he says here is the rivers of Eden. He starts talking about the rivers of Eden. But notice that they flow out of the Garden of Eden. This is one reason that you might translate that, that word where he says mist as some kind of underground spring, because these rivers are flowing out of the garden. So whatever that water source, there has to be some kind of water source that's creating rivers, right? Some kind of very powerful water source creating four rivers. Now, it's difficult to identify what these rivers actually are. There's different commentators. You can read different commentators. Some of them will be very confident in declaring certain things to be, certain rivers to be where they are. The, the Pishon and the Gihon specifically are pretty difficult to, uh, to identify. They're descriptive titles. Right? Pishon means the leaper. Gishon, uh, Gihon means the springer out. Right? So they're kind of descriptive of maybe the way that they acted. Um, some people assume the Pishon is the the Indus or the Ganges, Ganges River. That's a, a possibility. Uh, the Gihon is said to come flow through the land of Cush, which is often ide- identified as Ethiopia. And so many people think it refers to the Nile, since that's near there. Um, the Tigris and the Euphrates are easily identified. They know where those are. Those are flow through modern-day Iraq in that kind of region. Um, but their current states, one thing that's important when we try to identify and think about this, their current states aren't their original states, right? Their current states of where they are is not what was originally there. 
it's broken when the garden, when, um, when, when Adam and Eve fall, right? When they, when they break God's covenant with them. Um, these are likely, their, their current states are likely not their original Garden of Eden states or even locations because it's all going to be broken. We c- and, and, and a lot of times people want to be able to suss this out because they want to identify, well, where was the Garden of Eden? Well, as we'll see next week, by divine decree, you're never going to figure that out. Right? God specifically says, like, this is not going to be known to you. You're not going to find it. It's not that you could, you could get to it in any way. It's not known to you. It's not going to be known to you. Um, but if we were going to try, one possibility is that it's the dimensions of, of the original promised land. When God promises the land to Israel, he, he promises this, this distance from the Nile to the Euphrates. This is, this is the original, this is actually the promised land that God gives Israel. They never attain it. They never attain it in any of, during any of the kingdoms. They have never had all of this land, but this is the land that God had given them. And the, those, if, if the Gihon is the Nile, then that's possible that, that is, these are the dimensions, that somehow this was the region that these rivers flowed in. And if this was the original location of the Garden of Eden, if this was the space, like it's all desert now because it's been broken. Right? Because it's broken, this is mostly desert. Um, it's just a possibility. Now, as he puts, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, he puts them there to work it and to keep it. Right? He, puts, he says he puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And these words are, are really um, important. And, and they recur in Scripture. But I want to make one quick note about word Bible study when we talk about studying words in the Bible and how they recur in, in Scripture. Real quickly, um, it's important that when we try to examine words in the Bible that we look at words in the original language. Um, words are translated differently depending on their context because when you translate from one language to another, there's not always a clean word-for-word translation. An easy example if I was going to introduce myself in English, I would say, hi, I'm Christopher. If I was going to introduce myself in Spanish, I would say, me llamo Christopher. Those don't mean the same thing. They communicate the same thing, but they don't mean the same thing. The literal translation of what I said in Spanish is, I call myself Christopher. Right? So those aren't the same thing. You can't go, oh, well, me llamo Christopher. My name is Christopher. Then me means my and llamo means name. doesn't. Those are not the same thing, right? You would be communicating the right thing because that's what it was intended to communicate, but it's not the same thing. And so the same is true as we translate the Bible. They're not always translating the same word to the same word. It depends on the context. So it's vital that we look at the Hebrew and Greek words when we try to compare these words. Um, An easy way to do that is to look at a, a Strong's Concordance. I think you can even look them up online. There's probably apps you can get to. But you've got to be able to find those words. There's Strong's concordances. They, they numbered every word, so you can look it up by number. But you can't just go, well, I'm going to look up everything that says work and, and see what work means, because it's different words they're translating to work. In this case, you have to work and to keep. To work, obda, um, this is most often translated to serve. Most often it's translated to serve in, when it's translated to English. Somra, to keep is often translated to, to guard or watch over, right? It has that kind of context of not, not keep like possess, but to keep like you keep sheep, right? Or you guard over and watch over sheep, guard over and watch over this, this place. 
Later in Scripture, and, we, and you see it, this is actually the, the word that's going to be used with Cain and Abel when God comes to Cain and says, you know, where is Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Right? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I, am I supposed to, was I supposed to be guarding over him, watching over him? And then God uses these words, these are the words that ended up being used in the tabernacle. Right? When, he, when, when we look at them using the, how, how the people are going to act in, the priest, in their priestly duties and in the tabernacle and in serving God, these are the words that are going to be used. So we see this in, in Leviticus chapter, or sorry, in Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, as he's setting apart the tribe of Levi to be his priests. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. Minister, right there, that's obda. That's to serve, that they may serve him. They shall keep guard over him, again, right there, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister, serve, work, at the tabernacle. They shall guard, again, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard, again, right there, over the people of Israel as they minister, again, serve, at the tabernacle. Right, so he's putting these before them, these same words that were from the garden. Right, so he puts them there to serve and to keep watch over these things. He give the, gives these responsibilities to people. And this has implications for us because we are made to serve and to guard. We're made to serve to do the work that God has given us or whatever work that we've been given. We're made to, we're made to, to do that. We're made to guard. We're made to watch over what we've been made responsible for. But this idea of, of serving, working, and keeping guard over, watching over the things we've been made responsible for, that's part of our design. That's the way God has designed humans to be. That's God's creation intent is that we would have these responsibilities, that we would work, that we would have responsibility over certain things. And so for you, that's at your job and your home here at, at church where God has given you responsibilities, where God has given you tasks. It means that our everyday work is a holy task, right? That it's part of God's design to give us work. When we work, whether it's at, at our jobs or whether it's volunteering, whether it's here at the church, doing something else outside of the home, whether it's in the home, we're fulfilling God's purpose for us. Right? Even when you do things like tend a garden, you're part of God's original work for you. A life of, of laziness and leisure is not part of God's design. That's why people don't do well when they don't have something to do. Because we're made to have these things. We're made to have responsibilities, to have things we're responsible for, to look over, to watch out for. We're made to have a job, to serve, to work. Those things are, are part of how we're designed. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, it says, For what, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Again, this is our original purpose, to have responsibility, to have a job, to work, to serve, to guard over. Now, the last thing I want us to see in, this, in these couple of verses is he gives this command of them to not eat, right? He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. This is 
is, a vi- is vital as well to looking at God's design for us because last week we introduced this concept of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is what God creates in the garden. It's a people, in this case Adam and Eve, in a place, the garden in this, in this context, experiencing the presence of God as king. Now, that means they've established that relationship of him as king and them as subjects. And this rule does that, right? If you think about, it's kind of weird that, that, that God comes to them and says, listen, we have one rule, one rule. Don't eat from that tree. Not, if you're going to have one rule, that's a weird rule, right? Like, you think it would be like, oh, listen, we're going to have one rule, don't stab each other, <laughs> Right? Let's say if we're one rule, like, let's let that be the rule, right? Or like, you know, if, if you're in a, on a playground, like, we have one rule, no running, right? Like, if some kind of, like, have some logic to it, but like, in this case, this is, seems arbitrary. Like, well, there's just a tree, you got all these other trees, you're picking one tree and saying, don't eat from that tree? That seems arbitrary. But in reality, it's simply offering the choice to acknowledge God's position in, in, this, in this creation. Right, to acknowledge him as king. They go, okay, well, then our, by our obedience, we're submitting to that. Right? Any, of, any of you could, could do that. You can establish, you can try to establish a relationship with somebody in your life. If you just were both in a room together, and there's just a, like a chair sitting there, and you go, listen, don't touch that chair. And just see if they do it or not. Right? If they do it, now you have the authority, and they don't. Right? But it, if you try that with, like, another man, he's probably going to walk right over to it, touch it, right? Like, you're not in charge of me, right? That's, because that, that would establish, that establishes those roles. And so here, God is establishing this. Ultimately, he is king, we are his people. All right. Again, that's, so creation intent. All right, last, last section here. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a woman shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we see, we see again reiterated this idea that of it not being good for man to be alone, right? Last time we looked at the idea of God saying, let's create man in our image that he was in a relationship and he designed us for relationship. Here we see specifically, he says, like, it's not good for man to be alone. We need to, I need to create a partner for him. We're made for relationship in God's image. Now, the word he specifically uses is a helper. And a lot of people are offended by that. Now, a lot of people are offended by the idea of calling the woman his, the man's helper, right? But it's not, it's not intended to be that way in Scripture. It's not the way that it was written. 
And helper is actually a word that God uses to describe his own work many times, and often used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 118.7, he says, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Right there, he uses helper to describe God. He said, God is on my side as my helper. God is my helper. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help or helper come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in John chapter 14, verse 26, he uses the word helper to describe the Holy Spirit. Now you might say like, wait, aren't we jumping languages? Right, we're jumping from Hebrew to Greek. In the Greek, they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and Jesus would have read that, and he would have known that. And he's using the word that they used in the, New T- in the Old Testament Greek to say helper. Right? He's using it intentionally. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, will, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said of you. So again, we see here the God calling the Holy Spirit helper. Same word used for saying, I will create a helper for you. So it's certainly not meant to be demeaning. If anything, if you look at some of well, they, they need help, it does not indicate the weakness of the one who is helping. It indicates the weakness of the one being helped. Right? All this indicates is that the man was inadequate. If you really think about it, that's what it's saying. It's saying the man was inadequate. He needed a helper. Right? And so he creates woman. And I think any, any man would certainly agree, if they're being honest with themselves, and any wife would say, yeah, he needed help. <laughs> right? He needs help almost every day. Right? Like, that's, that's certainly the relationship. It makes sense if we think about it. Um, now we see also Adam name the animals. That, again, reiterates this idea of mankind having authority over the animals, of being made to be God's representative on the earth and, and have dominion over the animals. Shows his authority over them. But then we see him actually create woman, and, and he rejoices at finding his true command. He's like, this, this is my companion. None of those others were my companion. This is truly my companion. This is the one who matches me, right? Who has my flesh and my bones. This is the person that, that God made for me. And he points this idea, then the man and, and all men perpetually should leave and hold fast, right? Leave his, his family of origin and hold fast to his wife. This points to the man's priorities changing, right? Especially in that culture, the idea of saying leave is, is, is kind of like a, it like push off from, leave and, and, and almost abandon his father and mother. It's shifting his priority from his primary responsibility is not to his parents anymore, but to his wife, right? He's saying leave and hold fast to his wife, that he's shifting his allegiances, that his wife becomes the most important person in his life. Um, these are words that are used to describe covenants. This idea of hold fast is a covenant relationship. We see marriage as a covenant. And he calls it, he says, then they become one flesh. And again, this points to the permanency of marriage and the damage that can be done when it is broken. Right? That they, it's as though they were one person. And so if it's broken, that's a tearing, it's going to be do serious damage. Points to the importance and the primacy and again, the creation intent of marriage that God created men and women to be united forever, to be, crea- to be united for life. It's part of God's creation intent. And we see this weird thing, 
of, of saying that they're, they're just both naked and not ashamed, which again is a, we, uh, that's again a difficult thing to think of because it's something we've never experienced. But probably the closest thing is when you see a little kid running around naked and they don't care. Right? That's kind of the, clo- like, the closest way we could think of it is like a, a little kid that just doesn't have any problem being naked in front of anybody. They just run, run, run around and they have no, no shame about it. Um, but we, but we could think about, well, what does this point to? Because again, Adam and Eve, they're not little kids. They're, they're, they're full-grown adults. God created them as, as full-grown adults. And so what did that look like for them? What does it mean that they were naked and unashamed? Well, if we think about what, what this idea of unabashed nudity, what does it tell us about their, their mental state? First of all, it points to the fact that the environment was perfect. Right? <laughs> It points to the fact that, like, there was the perfect temperature, the perfect environment. Like, it felt great. They didn't need any clothes for warmth or from protection from the sun or anything like that. They had a perfect environment where they could be uh, nude and and not and not and enjoy it, right? It it points to idea of feeling safe, right? You think about okay, what are the situations in which you're willing to be nude? Like, you want to feel safe, right? You want to feel like the doors are locked. Everything is fine. No one's going to be walking in. No one's going to be barging in. Nothing's going to happen. You want to feel safe. It denotes a, a feeling of acceptance, right? They feel accepted. They feel valued. They feel loved. They feel like everything is okay, right? Between God and them and each other, that they're accepted and, and loved. And, and, it, and it denotes innocence, right? This idea of, yeah, they, they don't have anything to hide. They don't have anything to hide. And, and, and everything is out in the open, and they don't have any problem with that. This is, again, God's creation intent, the way that things were before everything was broken. We only had these few chapters that tell us what that was like. Let's wrap this up by looking at how should we then live then. What does this chapter tell us about how we might live? How might this change us? As we look at Scripture, that should always be our question. What does God want to change in in our hearts? Here's a couple possibilities. Number one, acknowledge God's authority over you as your creator. Right? This is a, a... a regular thing. This is not like, oh yeah, I did that. I've already done that. That's settled. No, that happens all the time, right? There's always things that we are trying to question God and say, no, but wait, God, I know better. Like, I mean, like it's, it's always difficult to, to put ourselves in that humble position of saying, yeah, God, you're in control. I have to submit to you as, as my creator. You know what's best. I don't actually know what's best. Number two, recognize your work as God's purpose for you. Like, what God has given you, the work he's given you to do, that's sacred work, that it's God's purpose in your life. The responsibilities you have are, again, God-given and part of his design for you, that he wants you to have those things. Number three, value marriage as God's design for men and women. To say, yeah, that idea of I, I'm bonded to this person for life, that they're, they're one flesh with me, that that is a, a value thing. And and it, it works even if you're not married, right? The idea of valuing marriage, it, that affects how you talk to people who are married, how you interact with, with marriage, what you think about the possibility of you being married someday, right? There are ways that we value marriage even if we're not a part of one, right? That we show that we value marriage even if it's not our own marriage. How do we, what kind of advice do we give of people that are married, all these different kinds of things that we go, yeah, do we value this or not? And then lastly, find beauty in God's creation, intent, and desire its restoration. 
Right? That's ultimately what we get to with this, is that God created the world in this way. Next week, we're going to look at it be broken. And then the rest of the story is God working to restore it. Right? These things we've looked at is what we're heading towards. This is a, people always think about, well, what's heaven going to be like? This is the best picture you have, right? It's actually what God created in the beginning because it's what God wanted life to be like. He's what he wanted life for us to be. So it's what he's going to, re- when he restores all things, that's the state he's going to restore it to, right? That's the story of history. That's the story of, of our lives, of scripture, of everything, is that process of God restoring all things. And ultimately, that happens through Jesus. That's ultimately where this is going to go. We'll see that next week. Even from the beginning, God promising that it will be restored through a man. And that man was Jesus. And he came and he died. He lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, paid that penalty that we couldn't pay to get, make a way for us to find peace with God. And we can find forgiveness from him, the, the sin that holds us back, the things that we do that where we reject God as our creator, we say, no, I know better, and I, I'm going to do things my way, that we can say, no, God, I, I'm tired of fighting that. I'm try, tired of trying to live on my own. I want to give that up. I want to follow you. I want to turn my life over to you. I'm going to repent. I'm going to stop living the way that I've been living. I'm going to turn my life over to you and seek to follow you for the rest of my life. And he's going to give you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. You say that he gives the Holy Spirit allows him to live inside of you and gives you the power to live that life, to have a better life, to have a different life. If you've never done that today, I, I encourage you to do that today. Do it right now. Why wait? Why wait? Do it now. We're going to have a prayer team up here in a minute after we, we do a closing song. There'll be men, up, men and women up here who would love to pray with you. Love to show you how to do that, to, to, to make that step. They'll be up here. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your creation intent for us. For the ways that you have made us to have purpose on this, in this world. God, that you've given us work, that you've given us responsibilities, that those are God-designed things. Thank you that you've made us to have all the amazing experiences we can have. Made us ultimately for you. We pray that we would live for your glory and not our own. We pray that you would shine through us as we seek to follow you, seek to take your word to the world to expand your kingdom here in this place. We pray all these things.